0: If you have a if you have a Bible open to the book of Acts Acts chapter 14 Uh, If you're not familiar with Redemption Church, uh, maybe maybe you don't know this, but Redemption Church is 10 congregations all throughout the state of Arizona, and uh, this morning, uh, every congregation is teaching through the same passage, and I'm not sure exactly how the passages get broken up, but all the passages get uh, associated titles with them as well, too. There's probably a supercomputer doing all that work somewhere, but last week, uh, the title of the message was The Gospel for Jews, and if you didn't hear it, you need to go back to the website and listen to it. Neil Pitchell. Um, taught that message and, and did an incredible job, and it was so great because uh, Neil has uh, life experience, and his story was just so integrated and tied right into that message title, "The Gospel for Jews." Uh, this week's title is "The Gospel for Pagans" with Paul Artino. So, um, <laughs> God just has a way of lining things up, I guess. There, um, we are no, we are uh, in in. Acts chapter 14, we're in what's known as the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, and they started on the island of Cyprus in the home of Barnabas. They go from there to Antioch. Uh, they go into the synagogue. They preach right from the Old Testament to present Jesus, who is the one who is pointed to in the Old Testament and the fulfillment Of all of our needs and hopes and dreams, and from there we're going to see in this passage they lead and they leave there and they head to three towns: towns Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And in the midst of all this, we're going to get Paul's very first sermon to a fully pagan, which means not familiar at all with the scriptures, not familiar with monotheism at all, audience. It's the it's the first time that we see that happen in the scriptures. Let's pray, uh, and then we'll just unpack this together and ask God to help us. Father, we love you, and God, we just thank you for your constant goodness to us, God, being able to see and hear stories from, uh, from camp, and God, how you just worked in the lives of so many students and dads and small group leaders, and God, just... It was amazing. We just thank you for the for the gift of that. And um, God, we've been saying all along as we've been looking at the book of Acts. God, we just we don't want this to just be a, a lesson in history. But God, we're asking you to do again what you have done in the life of your church by the power of your Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fall fresh in this moment. That you would control and cover me. That you would bring conviction to us where needed. That you would bring encouragement where needed. God, I pray most of all that we would not just be hearers of your word this morning, God, but that we would do something with it for the fame and the renown of Jesus Christ for his kingdom, that it would happen here on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, this is always and only about you, and so I ask these things in your name, amen. What we're going to see here in Acts chapter 14 is the gospel um, go outside of the church, go into the street, and we're going to see just how powerful the gospel, this good news is. Uh, we're going to see this disruptive power of the gospel, the, the good news about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 says it is the power, it's the same word that we get the word dynamite from, it's the it's the power of salvation to all who believe. And this morning, just briefly in our, in our time together, we're going to see how the power of the gospel disrupts our religion, meaning our activity, our behavior, our way of thinking that we can somehow earn the approval or the acceptance of God, the gospel disrupts that. The gospel disrupts our idolatry, our chasing after things that are false, that we think are going to satisfy us. And then lastly, we're going to see from this passage how the gospel disrupts our comfort. Acts chapter 14, we'll start in verse 1, at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue, and there they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So the, the Jews here, they represent the, the church people or the people who are religiously inclined. They, they represent a group of people who do not perceive or sense their need for a Savior because they, by their own efforts or their own tradition or their own behavior, they believe that they're able to save themselves or to earn the approval or earn the acceptance of God and their own merits. And the gospel disrupts those of us who think like this because the gospel confronts our autonomy. The gospel confronts our self-sufficiency. The gospel tells us that we have sinned, that we've rebelled against the holy God, and that we are eternally separated from Him. And that message doesn't sit too well with people. When confronted with that, you'll often hear people say, well, I'm really not a bad person or I haven't really done things that are that bad comparatively. When the gospel talks about our sin, it's not just that we have done bad things, it's that we've all done our own thing. Psalm 14.3 says, they have all turned away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And even if people can't arrive at the place where they say, okay, I, I have in fact sinned, it's disrupting to think of a message that says you can't get yourself out of your own mess. Because we think, well, all I'll have to do is just pull myself up by my spiritual bootstraps. I I know what I'll do. I'll just create a pile of good things over here in my life. And that good pile will be far better than the bad pile. And at the end of my life, my activity will just speak for itself. and, and, And surely all the good things that I've done that far outweighs the bad things, that will earn me heaven or that will earn me the approval of God. And that line of thinking makes sense, which is why nearly every major religion in the world kind of works that way. You exercise your way to salvation. You exercise your way to heaven or favor or blessing. You're able to work yourself out of guilt and condemnation. But when Jesus comes and with him our redemption, he, he comes with a message that redemption for us was not an exercise for us to complete, but it was a beautiful exchange The condemnation that was due us was poured out on Jesus Christ at the cross, and his righteousness covers us or is counted towards us. So with Jesus and the gospel message, we don't get religion, we don't get an exercise to complete, we get an exchange. We get God saying, I'm going to take the innocent one and make him guilty so that the guilty ones in him can become innocent. I'm going to put my son in your place. I'm going to make an offering that no one else can offer. I'm going to one time, for all time, finish sin, death, hell, and the grave. And I'm going to cancel the debt and break every chain and announce freedom for every person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. And that gospel message is so powerful and so beautiful, but it disrupts our efforts to earn the approval of God. But it's powerful to bring salvation and redemption by the grace of Jesus Christ Through faith in him alone. So the gospel has the power to disrupt our religion. Secondly, the gospel disrupts our idols. Look at verse 10 in chapter 14. Excuse me, let's back up to verse 8. In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had faith to be healed and called out: Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. In verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to him. Verse 14, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. But even with these words, verse 18 says, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. The gospel disrupts our idols. There's In Lystra, this Kind of rural, less developed area. Uh, There's no reference to a synagogue, which probably means there wasn't one. So, Paul and Barnabas here, they're interfacing with a population that has had no previous contact with the God of Israel. There's that healing miracle that takes place there, and it brings about a response from the people who now begin to bring sacrifices. To Paul and Barnabas. And if you know a little bit of the history of this region, this story actually makes a little bit more sense. There's a, a local legend that said that at one time, two traditional gods, Zeus, who's the leader of the Pantheon, and Hermes, who is his messenger, they came to earth in the form of poor men and they, they sought hospitality in that region. But they were repeatedly denied until a poor elderly couple invited them in and gave them lodging in their in their meager cottage. Well Later, the gods returned to repay that older couple but also destroyed the flood with a flood the the homes of those who had rejected them So Now they see Paul and Barnabas who look like they have divine power, and they think to themselves, "The gods have revisited us again." We're not going to mess it up this time. We're going to get it right. We're going to give them the honor that is due them. So they began to offer them these sacrifices, and Paul and Barnabas respond appropriately so by tearing their clothes and saying, stop, we're only men like you. Do not make sacrifices to us. So from this scene, I think there's two things that are important for us, church, to learn from, from this scene here. First, we need to be careful, church, about the pedestal that we put pastors and Christian leaders on. Appreciation and thankfulness are genuine virtues and they shouldn't be suppressed, but people have a tendency to love vessels. The scripture says that we are just simple jars of clay, but people have a tendency to love vessels rather than loving the one who flows through and is contained in the vessel. And if God has ever done a profound work in your heart, and he's used someone to accomplish that, then what has occurred in your heart is not due to the person at all, but rather is due to the Holy Spirit who is inside of that person, flowing out of that person to do work in you. And so the praise of what God has done in your heart goes to God, not to the person. So according to, according to the Bible, the person is to be honored as a servant of the Lord, but not exalted past that. When you're eating at a restaurant, The servant brings you the meal. It's appropriate to thank them. But ultimately, the praise for your enjoyment of the meal goes to the one who prepared it. And when you exalt vessels beyond where they're to be exalted, it's not good for them and it's not good for you. Because it robs you of worship and it puts too much pressure on the man or woman. It puts too much pressure on simple jars of clay. I, I, I was sitting with a, a prominent Christian leader, pastor, author uh, recently, and we had a long conversation about this, actually, and he began to kind of talk about the pressure that gets created in this Christian culture of consumerism, uh, w- you know, and 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 this is a guy who had led a large church, he'd written multiple books, uh, spoken at numerous, numerous conferences, and he said what that began to do in him is it began to put him in a place where it created huge ego and pride, also made him uh, live in a space where he couldn't be vulnerable and honest, uh, and if there was a lie, he'd have to kind of cover that lie so that he would not be exposed and would lose platform and influence and all those things, and we've seen that happen all over the the landscape of evangelical leaders, unfortunately, Um, but but he he made this statement, which really resonated with me, and he said, you know, in that particular culture, you're only as good as your last sermon. You're you're only as good as your last book, or you're only as good as the last conference that you spoke at. And, and when we do that, we, we, put, we put these men and, and women in a place, we exalt them to a place that vessels should not be exalted to. Now, I, I believe that God's given me an ability to communicate and in some instances a, a, a gift of, of preaching, but I know who I am. I, I think of all the times when I've tried to type something out on my computer and, and then there's a word that's wrong and I'll click on it and, the, and my computer will just say, I got nothing for you. Like, I literally have no idea what you're trying to do right now. It says, it says no suggestions. Like, I have all the words. I have access to all the words. But right now, what you're trying to do, I'm completely lost on that, right? If someone ever comes to me and they say, you know, God's really used you in a profound way, I know exactly who I am. I know that I am the guy who my senior year in college, five and a half years in, my, my final for my Spanish class, I had no idea what, I didn't know, I know, in poquito espanol, like, So, I literally got sock puppets and a translation from um, a a search engine called Ask Jeeves, rest in peace. and, And I used sock puppets and read these translations. I took an aerobic dancing class and barely passed because my instructor, who was seven months pregnant, felt so sorry for me, and she's like, "Look, you just—I got to get you out of here. So I'm really sorry about it." So I know I know who I am, and you know I love that God chooses to use uh, weak and foolish things, um, but uh, but that's why we must be careful. For our own joy and the safety of those whom God uses to praise the Lord for his work and not his vessels for that work. You can thank them, you can encourage them, you can honor them, but don't exalt them too high because they'll run out of air. If you put them in an altitude where they can't survive, they will run out of air. They're just men, they're just women, they're all perishing. We all have cracks in our jars. It is God to be honored, it is God who to be praised, and it is God who's building his church. The second thing that we learn from this encounter that we see right here in Lystra is that we are desperate for our idols to come through for us and to provide for us what they never can. We are desperate for our idols to come through for us and to provide for us what they never can. But the gospel will always and only provide for us what we are most desperate for. The gospel will always and only provide for us what we are most desperate for. These people, they thought they had another chance to honor the gods. And you and I, with our particular idols, the false things that we bow down to, the false things that we chase after, the false things that we pursue, we are desperate. Maybe this time, I know they've broken my heart time and time and time again, but maybe this time they'll come through. Maybe this time. In, 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 in verse 15, Paul lays out, he says, look, this, this gospel, this good news, it makes us turn from worthless things, from false things to the true living God. And for this group, it was obvious because the temples were, were set up, they could see what those things are. But I think for us in our culture, it's, it, 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 it's kind of sneaky. We don't always see what those things are. Uh, Tim, multiple times at camp, I love that he did this. He, it was about pursuit, and he said, I'm not going to stand up here and speak out against the things telling you what not to pursue. I'm just going to hold up for you the beauty of Jesus so that you'll see that he's better and so that you'll know that is the place your pursuit should go. And I, but I think in our particular culture, it's, it's tricky for us to identify the things that, those are the idols of our day. I, I think one of them is image. You know why, why advertisements that um, make us feel uncool about our phones or our cars or our clothes or where we live, you know why all those advertisements actually work? Because we work so hard on our image. We care so much about our image. We protect it. We promote it. Think about all the compromises that you have made in your life so that you might present yourself a certain way to people or peoples. The, 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 the idol of materialism. In our culture, when we talk about somebody's worth, we're talking about what they own or their bank account. And so the way it works in our culture, if you want to have more value, you have more. More what? We don't even know, just more, right? In, in our culture, the, the idol of, of, of pleasure, so everything revolves around making life easier, making life more enjoyable, We sacrifice for pleasure, we sacrifice for enjoyment, we sacrifice to be pain-free. In each case, we take part of what God has created, like the enjoyment of things, which is good, and instead of praising him for the enjoyment of things, again a good thing, we take enjoyment and make it our God. Everything orbits around our enjoyment or our pleasure. That's idolatry. The gospel calls us to the truth that we live in God's world with him at the center, that our lives would orbit around him. And that's not a way that we so often think about our relationship with Jesus. We think of it as, as something that we've kind of added on. Like we think of it as like a hobby. Like, oh, that's nice for you that you have that. It, it, it's like this addition that we've built onto our house, but we don't want to mess with anything else in the rest of the house. We want to keep the furniture. We want to keep the rooms. We want to keep the wallpaper. And there just isn't a Christianity that's like that. There isn't a following of Jesus that allows us to create these compartments or to segregate things like our money or our career or our relationships. Um, My wife really likes this Fixer Upper show and... It's funny. People have told her that she kind of looks like this woman. We recently had an opportunity to meet uh, this couple, and we made it super weird and awkward. We talked about him eating a bug and shiplap and stuff we don't even know about, but we met them, and and one of the things about this couple that I I love but also makes me really nervous that my wife watches the show too much is they're not afraid to knock down or tear out anything. They are, they are not afraid. And Lauren, if she's watching it for a while, she's like, hey, I think we could do this. And I was like, look, babe, we can. We can tear out the walls, but it's styrofoam and chicken wire. It will not have the same effect as it does on that show. But in our Christian life, in our life of following Jesus, we need to realize that becoming a Christian, following Jesus, involves digging up the foundation of your old house and rebuilding it completely. It's a complete reorientation and it influences everything. Nothing can remain the same because everything is to be built on this new foundation with God at the center. This was an incredibly disruptive message in Iconium and Lystra and Gilbert. The gospel is the truth about God's love over us and his grace and mercy towards us. And it includes a new life where we are no longer at the center. But the one true living God is at the center. The gospel is powerful to disrupt our idolatry. And lastly, the gospel has the power to disrupt our comfort. So Paul, as you find him later on in this chapter, he's nearly killed by way of having a mob heap huge stones on top of him. Leaves him for dead outside of the city. There, there's a preacher who once said about the Apostle Paul, I once saw the track of a bleeding rabbit across the snow. That was Paul's track across Europe. Look at verse 21 in Acts chapter 14. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true in the faith. Listen to what they said. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Now, these missionaries, they, they could have continued to travel east and then south towards Syria and Antioch and gone home, but instead they deliberately turned westward and returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, the very places that they were run out of, the very places that they suffered severe opposition. They returned to the places where the gospel message had, had offended. And I think because the gospel is so disruptive, we don't want to share it. Because we think, ah, oh, it's, a, it's a message with edges, it, 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 should we be talking so loud? Should we be sharing this message that's so destabilizing? Is it worth it? In the 1950s and 1960s, a young preacher by the name of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. brought a much-needed destabilizing message to our culture. Was it worth it? Absolutely. Sometimes we need to know that there is something more important... There is something more loving than stability. I think sometimes we are so concerned with people liking us that we lose an opportunity to love them. We're we're so concerned that someone would like us that we don't truly love them. We are not preaching a message where people were asking people to just to add Jesus to their lives. We are preaching the life-giving, hope-filled, joy-saturated message of turning from whatever false God is at the center of your life, that false God that continues to break your heart. Turn from that and turn to a life where the one true living God is at the center of your life. And that means you're going to step on some toes. The apostle Paul, he says in verse 15, the thing that you've devoted your life to, that you've been worshiping, it's worthless. That's pretty harsh. Now, before you get all fired up and ready to run out there and offend all your neighbors with the gospel, remember, Paul also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 if I don't have love, then I'm just I'm, I'm noisy. I'm just a clanging gong, I'm a, I'm a noisy symbol. It, I'm going to illustrate. It's like this. If without love, without love, church, this is what we are. I've never had one lesson. that's annoying. That's terrible. That's not who God has called us to be. But without love, that's who we are. I I, I was sitting with this amazing um, pastor leader recently, and he was talking about ministry. He was talking about loving people, and he was kind of illustrating in the context of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. And he made this statement, which is still kind of ringing in my ears along with the symbol, but he, he said, love starts at the feet. Ministry starts at the feet and works its way up to the head. And, church, I think for, for most of us, so often we want to bang the gospel into the head of our neighbor, but we won't stoop low to wash their feet. It starts at the feet and works its way up. Paul understood that carrying the name of Jesus to the world meant hardship and suffering. The apostle Paul was imprisoned, stoned, beaten, flogged, shipwrecked, starved, exhausted, and endangered throughout his life as a follower of Jesus Christ. And because of his experiences throughout his letters, Paul was intent on reminding Christians that hardship is to be expected. In fact, in Philippians chapter 1, he says, It's been granted to you on behalf of Christ. Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. It's been given to you. And our typical response is to avoid pain at all costs. But Paul says, Christian, you are to accept the trial in light of the fact that God suffers with us. And because God says good things come from our difficulties. In fact, in Romans chapter 5, we also glory in our sufferings. It gets weight. It gets value in our life. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, it's temporary. Chapter 4, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles. The guy was dragged outside the city and had rocks heaped on top of him. Light and momentary troubles. They are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. There's this moment that Jesus has uh, with his followers after his resurrection, and he has this interaction with one of his followers named Thomas. And Thomas had a particularly difficult time believing that Jesus had actually been raised from the dead. And he famously says of Jesus, he says, he says, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, I will not believe. G. Campbell Morgan says, what Thomas said of Christ, the world is saying about the church. And the world is saying to every preacher or gospel proclaimer, which is all of us as Christians, the world is saying to us is, unless I see in your hands the print of the nails, I will not believe. He says, it is the one who has died with Christ that can preach the cross of Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for your movement, and your power. God, thank you for the disruptive power of the gospel that shakes our religion, that shakes our autonomy, our self-sufficiency, that shakes us from a belief that we can earn it, we can do it on our own. God, thank you for the mercy of the power of the gospel that shakes us from our idolatry, that shakes us from the deception of false things that always fail us, that always trap us, that always enslave and ensnare us, God, that breaks our hearts. God, thank you for the disruptive power of the gospel that moves us out of our comfort. And God, I'll just repeat again, asking again, God, don't let us just read through this book and walk away saying that was good for them. But God, do it again. Do it in our day. Holy Spirit, move move in us and through us. Jesus, we pray all of these things that you would be famous in our cities, in our state, in our country, in our world. God, your fame and your renown, that is the desire of our hearts and our souls. Jesus, we love you and it's in your name we pray. Amen.